God's expecting something. He's coming to the tree of Israel to look for fruit. And there's judgment where he doesn't find it. But there's blessing and there's reward where he does find the fruit, which is born only through abiding in Jesus. Not to the exclusion of non-Jewish people, but in a right and divine order, because that's how he's worked through history. Welcome to A Jew and a Gentile Discuss. I'm your co-host, Carly Berna. And I'm Ezra Benjamin. We're a Jew and a Gentile who both believe in Jesus and believe that there's value in looking at history as well as today's world and the headlines through both a Jewish and a Christian lens. Today, we're actually going on part two of a two-series podcast that we're doing about replacement theology. So if you haven't listened to the first episode, go back to last week uh, and listen to Ezra and I talk about replacement theology so that you have the context for this discussion. So today we're going to talk specifically about texts in the scripture that some might say do support replacement theology. So let's discuss. So Ezra, last week we talked about replacement theology and some statements that we talked about when someone agrees with replacement theology were that the church is the new Israel, that God rejected the Jewish people and chose the nations, that the church has inherited the benefits of all Israel, but the Jewish people, because of their disobedience, continue with the curses, and that the heart of God for Jewish people is for them to convert, receive Jesus, and become Christians. And there may be some people still listening um, who believe that, or maybe they just have heard that in their church and never questioned it because they've never heard anything else. Um, so today we're going to talk specifically about scriptures that um, some might believe support replacement theology. Um, so let's start there. I'm going to start with one scripture, which is in Matthew 21, 43, that says, Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Now, I don't believe in replacement theology, but I can see from someone reading that scripture that they might think, okay, the Jews have broken the old covenant. They were disobedient. God is going to take away all of their blessings and give it to a new people, which in this case they're defining as the church today instead of the Jewish people, who will produce its fruit. So how would you respond to someone who came up to you with that scripture verse in support? Good question, Carly. And let me kind of back up a half a step and just quickly for those who maybe didn't catch the first episode, if you didn't, uh, go back and listen to the first episode in the series about replacement theology. But if you're going, wait, 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 what's this whole replacement theology thing? I heard the statements Carly said. Maybe I agree with those things. Maybe I don't. Maybe I'm not sure. Replacement theology, in a nutshell, is the idea that because of Israel's disobedience, God has rejected Israel and the Jewish people as his covenant people and has formed a new covenant with a new people called the church. And that if Jewish people want to join the church, that's great for them. But as a people, God is done with Israel. That the promises and the blessings he made to Israel are null and void. They've been canceled because of hardness of heart and disobedience on Israel's part. And, and namely because of a rejection in large part of the Messiahship of Jesus. And that the Jewish people remain with the curses of disobedience and unbelief. That's replacement theology. Um, and, and some, you know, may be listening saying, yeah, I think, you know, I have heard that from my pastor. I have heard that in my small group. Maybe I heard that from my parents. Maybe I heard that at my seminary and I'm not sure I don't believe that. And like Carly said, there's some scriptures that 
kind of lead me to believe that maybe that's the case. And the one you quoted about, you know, therefore I tell you, Jesus is talking, it's important. I'm kind of going to give away my answer to your question here, Carly, but we have to understand the context, right? Jesus says, therefore I tell you, who is you? Well, we'll answer that in a minute, that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. And the context of what's happening in the Gospels is so important. I think any any scripture, right? I, I went to some, some theology classes when I was in university, and they said, text without context is pretext. Meaning if you don't understand what's happening around the verse you're trying to understand, you're going to make your own assumptions. You're going to fill in the blanks with what you already think you believe rather than what the Bible's telling you is true in that passage with the context. So the context here, when Jesus says, uh, therefore, I tell you, we need to understand that he's saying this. This is a dialogue as so much of his interactions recorded in the in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are. This is a dialogue with the Pharisees or the Sadducees, in essence, the religious leaders. And why is that important? Because what we have to understand is that Jesus shows up on the scene, not only during the Roman occupation, right? The time of the Roman Empire and Israel is really a Roman province at this point under the control of the Caesars and the pilots of the day. But also he's showing up at a time when for centuries, Jewish people uh, relied on their leaders, either local, regional, national, namely the priests, the scribes. And these two major sects at the time, the Pharisees, who believed in the resurrection from the dead, of the possibility of it, and that people would, enact, in fact, resurrect to meet God the Judge and hopefully the Messiah, the Savior, in the day when they're resurrected. And then the Sadducees, who believed you're never resurrected. When you die, that's it. There's no possibility of being raised from the dead. And these two major sects, but what they had in common was that out of their fervent desire to meet the demands of the law, the Torah, fence upon fence upon fence had been built around the 613 commandments in the Torah to make sure that not only did Jewish people not break the commandments, but that they never even got close to breaking them. And more than that, that they would never give the appearance to the people around them that they were even getting close to breaking them. And so you have rabbinical interpretation upon rabbinical interpretation. And out of that, as is the case with so many religious systems and faiths throughout history, including today, you have religious systems that usurp the actual holy documents of that faith in importance, and those religious systems are governed and dictated by either community-appointed or self-appointed religious leaders who maintain their power by lording it over the people they're leading. And so Jesus shows up on the scene to confront, uh, I'm not going to say condemn, he condemned those who turned against him out of hardness of heart, but to confront the Jewish religious leaders of his day who were creating religious systems to, to maintain either political or religious power over the majority of Jewish people who are just trying to figure out, do I have any possibility of being in right standing with God? Or because I'm not the religious elite, am I somehow rejected and unless I subscribe to the system that I'm being handed, incapable of ever having right standing, right relationship with God. And so what Jesus is saying is, hey, to whom much is given, much will be required. And he's using this image of the fruit, right? Like he came to the fig tree hungry, looking for fruit. And he saw this beautiful fig tree in season, in bloom, lots of green leaves on it, but he can't find any fruit. 
And so he's comparing the religious elite in the Jewish community of that day to these fruit trees that look really good on the outside, very approachable, seem like they're going to be bearing fruit because of their attire, because of their words, because of the systems they ascribe and hold others accountable to carry out. And yet when you get close to the trees, in fact, there's no fruit. And so Jesus is kind of getting in these religious elite leaders business saying, God's coming to look for fruit. And you're the ones who, according to the your appearance outwardly should be the most fruitful in Israel. And yet I can't find any because in fact, you're full of uncleanness and hypocrisy and selfish ambition and covetousness and jealousness, jealousy. And you're actually jealous that people are following me because I'm doing signs and wonders to restore people to right relationship with God. And they're abandoning following you, which threatens your power. So there was a lot of kind of uh, Ezra's paraphrase of so much of the context of what's happening around there. But when Jesus says in this passage, therefore I tell you, we need to hear, therefore I tell you, religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, priests, that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Jesus isn't saying God's taking the kingdom from Israel and giving it to a people who aren't Israel. He's saying, if I can't find the fruit on the trees of the religious leadership, I'm going to raise up others in Israel and among the nations and appoint them to leadership who are going to be faithful shepherds and produce what I was looking for among the shepherds of Israel that I've been looking for among the kings of Israel, looking for among the prophets, looking for among the scribes, which is those who would produce the fruit that I really want, which is leading people into right relationship with me rather than keeping them away from it out of political or selfish ambition. And so that was a mouthful right there. But this is not a passage, Carly, where God's saying, I'm going to take the kingdom away from Israel. We don't see that in the scriptures. He's saying, I'm going to take it away from unfaithful shepherds and give it to shepherds after my own heart. Jesus says, I am the great shepherd. I am the door for the sheep. And I'm going to raise up faithful shepherds in Israel and among the Gentiles who will bear the fruit that I'm looking for. And that fruit is people coming into right relationship with God, not coming into obedience and subservience to a man-made religious system. So for those listening who might be wondering where Ezra's getting the context, two verses later in Matthew 21, 45, it actually says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. So that you is them. Now, if I was just, you know, taking the other viewpoint, Ezra, that context is totally clear that that you is them. But how do you know that when it says given to a people who will produce its fruit, that noun people is really talking about Jewish, other Jewish people? How do you know it's not just the new church? When the Gentile woman comes to him, we know the story, right? There's this woman in need. She's desperate to have a touch from Jesus. She knows he's the miracle worker. She believes he's everything he says he is. She believes he's the Messiah, the Savior, and he can have a transformative impact on her life, on the life of the members of her family who are hurting. And what's Jesus' response to her? He says, I haven't come but for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's kind of fancy King James Version language. But what he's saying there is the the, the primary reason, if I, in essence, let me let me say it backwards. If I haven't come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, I haven't come for anyone. He's not saying I've only come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's saying to this woman, you need to understand my priority, the way I showed up, 
the family I was born into, the things I'm doing, the things the prophets saw concerning me hundreds of years before, the things Moses saw concerning me when he said, another one's coming, listen to him, he's greater than I, to the children of Israel after the Exodus. All that had been proclaimed about Jesus pointed to a Messiah in Israel. And Jesus is saying, my priority here is to do what the prophets and the scribes never could do and to be a faithful shepherd regathering the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's my priority. And the woman says, look, I'll take, I mean, some people are offended by this language, but let's just contextualize it for a minute. She says, even the dogs eat the crumbs that that, that fall from the master's table. Jesus isn't agreeing, yeah, you're a dog. He's saying, I honor this woman's faith that she's saying, I'll take whatever of the Savior of Israel I can get because something of God, something of salvation, something of miraculous breakthrough in my life is better than nothing. And right now I've got nothing. I'm desperate. That's the context here. And Jesus rewards her, right? Not only does he answer her prayer, he says, I haven't seen this kind of faith in all Israel. So how do we know that, that God was talking about primarily, not exclusively, but primarily people in Israel, not just among the nations who would bear his fruit, because we understand his assignment. Jesus' assignment wasn't to condemn the world, wasn't to condemn Israel. It was to come to redeem lost sheep in Israel. And then right before he goes back after he's resurrected to be with the Father, he says to the Jewish believers on the Mount of Olives, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, you, Jewish followers, uh, disciples of mine, Go make disciples of all ethnos, of all nations, namely of all the non-Jewish people on the face of the earth. But the commandment, the promises, the redemption, the regathering of those who were far from God was first to Jewish people. So we understand it in the context in which Jesus came uh, in terms of of understanding who he's talking about here. Again, don't be offended and say, Ezra's saying that the promises and the salvation... uh, is only for Jewish people. No, hear me very clearly. It's not only Romans 1.16, the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, first for the Jew and also for the nations, for the Gentiles. Not first for the Jew, and then if there's anything left over for the nations, but an, a, a matter in the same way that Jesus proclaimed of, of priority in the providence and the intention of God to do something in Israel that would be a testimony for the nations to gather many to himself. So before we go on to the next scripture, I want to ask something kind of like what you're talking about. So if there's a Christian who's listening, who's saying, okay, it, it really does sound like Ezra saying the Jewish people are the priority. What's left for me as a Christian? How would you explain the roles that God has ordained for both Jewish people and Gentiles? They're separate roles that he has in his plan. Yeah, they are separate roles. And you know, some people, frankly, and we were talking about this recently at Jewish Voice, right? Romans 1.16, we know the passage, and if you don't know it, look at it. The power of God, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, and it says in Greek, proton for the Jew. Proton means necessarily first, not just that I'm looking at a line of people and I happen to see somebody and count them first. It's necessarily first or prioritized is the Greek word there, and also for the nations, It doesn't say, and then, or with what's left over, or with the scraps that remain, or some people misapply that that, uh, story in the Gospels that I referenced, with the crumbs that happen to fall down, that's what's left for the Gentile, for the non-Jewish person, but it's saying necessarily first. And why? Well, if we go on a chapter in Romans and look at Romans 2 verses 8 and 9, we see that what, what Paul is pointing to is that 
I'm holding out salvation, right? I'm holding out the message of the mercy and the redemption and the forgiveness of God found in the person of Jesus. First for the Jew, because there's a righteous judge. God the Father is coming to judge the earth. Jesus himself is coming to trample his enemies under his feet. We see it clearly in the scriptures, in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation, and to judge those who reject him. And right there, it also says, first for the Jew. But then it says, but for those who follow him and who are obedient and who hold fast to the word of truth and the testimony of Jesus to reward them at his coming, first for the Jew and also for the Gentile. So I think there again, Carly, in replacement theology, we're very happy to agree with Paul's statement that for those who reject Jesus, that it's first the Jew who's going to be punished. Yes, they they you know received the the calling of God, they received the scripture, they received the law, and they turned their back on him and rejected him. So of course they should first be judged. And then it says, no, but for those who, who believe in Jesus and who hold fast to his testimony and who obey his word, even at the cost of their own lives, he's coming back to reward and to receive first for the Jew. And we go, ah, well, that seems like favoritism to me. And I just want to say boldly to our audience, you can't have you can't have it both ways. If you're willing to believe, if you're willing to agree with Paul theologically that judgment belongs first to the Jew because God's first called the Jewish people to himself, he's first revealed himself to them, he's first given them the covenants and the word and the prophets and the Torah and the writings and all the blessings in the Old Testament. If you're willing to believe that judgment belongs first to the Jew, then believe in the mercy of God that that first is held out to the Jewish people as well. Not exclusively, but first. And that passage in Romans 2 ends with the idea because there's no partiality with God. Paul says it clearly. And you may say, well, wait a minute. God just said it's necessarily first to the Jew. Yeah, but look at what it is that's necessarily first, both the judgment and the mercy. We can't pick and choose. I think sometimes replacement theology says the Christians first get the blessings and the Jews first get the curses. Well, if there's no partiality with God, then do some theological gymnastics and try to get out of that, right? The, the curses are for the Jews. The curses are for Israel and the blessings are for the church. How is God impartial who does that? So I think, Carly, we got to look at the whole context there. Romans 1 and 2 are important. Lest you're offended, lest you're confused, lest you're wondering what's this idea of priority. God's expecting something. He's coming to the tree of Israel to look for fruit. And there's judgment where he doesn't find it first for Israel, because the promises and the blessings were given first to Israel. But there's blessing and there's reward where he does find the fruit, which is born only through abiding in Jesus, uh, the Jewish Messiah and the Savior of the world, first for Israel, because he first gave the promise to Israel. So he's first going to reward faith in Israel, not to the exclusion of non-Jewish people, but in a right and divine order, because that's how he's worked through history. So let's talk about Romans 1.16, where you're talking about where Paul says to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. Because many people see that, or I've recently heard someone say, I thought that was Paul just explaining how he delivered the gospel. First he went to the Jews, and then he went to the other nations. Almost like a, you know, a historical fact to the Jews and then to the other places. But what you're saying is it wasn't just about, you know, the the way that Paul traveled from one city to another, Jews and then to the nations, but more about this idea of necessarily first proton, not just how he traveled down the road. Exactly. This is not Paul's 
recapped itinerary in Romans 1.16 of I'm proclaiming to the gospel. The gospel. Tuesday, I'm going to the synagogue. Wednesday, I'm going to everyone else. That's not what he's saying, even though he does say clearly in Romans 11 that he's making much of his ministry and he's actually, wherever he goes, going first to the synagogue. Why? Because that's just Paul's preference, because he kind of want to connect with the lo local Jewish community, get some good local Jewish food while he's there, and then go on his way. No, he's saying there's a scriptural principle here that the God of order and the God of history and the God of providence has said, I've given something to Israel first, and I'm requiring something of them first. I've given them blessings and commandments and the knowledge of who I am and a commandment to be a blessing to all the families of the earth first. I'm going to require faith of them first. And because the righteous judge requires faith, the God of mercy also offers that faith to the Jew first. He, he's speaking of a divine priority and a providence. Nobody's better or worse. Nobody's included or excluded but God actually is operating without partiality in offering mercy first to those who will be judged first, because that's how he set it up. So it's a really interesting concept. It's not just Paul's itinerary, and it's not partiality and favoritism. It's divine providence. And Paul's pulling on something here that God showed Abraham and showed the, the prophets in Israel and the forefathers that salvation, that the blessings of Israel weren't given to Israel for Israel alone. They were given to Israel because the calling on Israel, as we've talked about in other episodes of this podcast, it was from jump, from the beginning, to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. It says it's too small a thing that I've called you to redeem the outcasts of Israel and to bring salvation to the Jewish people. I'll also make you, namely Jesus, the prophet is saying, I'll also make you a light to the Gentiles to bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So the idea was always that all nations would have the opportunity to encounter Jesus. The way God wanted to do that, the way he chose to do that, was taking a people who had rejected him in disobedience, who had turned their back on him in every generation, and holding out mercy time and time again through Jesus, the Messiah, the Redeemer of Israel, by whose blood were made righteous uh, to the Jewish people. And the idea there was that the Jewish people would be a banner and a testimony to the nations. Why? Because if God can take a stiff-necked, stubborn-hearted, callous, disobedient people like Israel and bring them back to himself, then surely he can do that for me. That's the testimony of Israel. Not about our righteousness or our faithfulness, but about the righteousness and the faithfulness of a promise-keeping God. So let's move to the third scripture, which is Luke 21, 24, that some may interpret to support replacement theology, which says, They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So again, this idea that, okay, you know, the Jewish people were unfaithful. The Gentiles will come and trample on Jerusalem, and they'll be the most important until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Well, again, the context matters. The text without the context is pretext. So Yeshua, Jesus is really lamenting and at the same time prophesying, not something new, but something which the prophets of the Old Testament uh, living hundreds of years before Jesus walked on earth and ministered also saw this idea that the days would come when Israel, because of her disobedience, would once again be scattered among the nations. And really, we know at this point, when Jesus shows up on the scene, the, the first exiles happened, and then the return under Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, others happens, and, and the Jewish people are back in the land. But Jesus is prophesying and looking ahead to what we know happened around 70 AD, where 
the Roman Empire actually burnt and destroyed the second temple that Solomon had built in Jerusalem and destroys Jerusalem and basically scatters the Jewish people again, except for a very small remnant who managed to remain throughout the centuries in Israel because there's always been, even if it's tiny, a Jewish remnant, a remnant of Jewish people living in the land of Israel, contrary to some of the the other rhetoric that we hear in, in rewritten history today. But anyway, that's a topic for another day. Listen to our episode on the land of Israel and the people of Israel. But the idea here is Jesus is looking ahead, seeing the destruction that was coming, and he understands it's because of Israel's disobedience, right? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I long to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. You were not willing. And again, He's, he's seeing the destruction due to callousness, due to turning away from God, due to unbelief, and really at this point, due to the widespread rejection among most of the Jewish community in Israel in that day of his own messiahship. Okay, there's going to be a destruction again. There's going to be a scattering. And as you read, Carly, in Luke 21, Jerusalem, this city that at the time Jesus is saying this, hosts the manifest presence of God through the priesthood, through the Levitical sacrifice system in the second temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, that's going to be destroyed and Jerusalem's going to be trampled by the Gentiles. What does that mean? Under the control of non-Jewish people. And we sort of leave it there, right? Israel was disobedient. So Jerusalem's going to be given over to the Gentiles and Jesus said it and the prophets saw it and that's the way it is. But we can't lob off the second part of the verse or the final part of the verse here. What does it say? until the times of the Gentiles, until the times of the nations are fulfilled. And then Jesus points ahead in the context here to this regathering of Israel in the last days and this return to Jerusalem and ultimately to his own return to Jerusalem. And in that other passage I've been quoting, kind of parallel to answering your question about Luke 21, this passage in Matthew where Jesus is saying, I tell you the truth, right? How long I've often to gather you, but you were not willing. And then he's he's sitting on the Mount of Olives looking at Jerusalem and he prophesies and he says, truly I say to you, Jerusalem, you will not see me again until, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in Hebrew, that phrase, Baruch HaBabashem Adonai, is what we know as a messianic declaration. It's from, uh, from the Psalms, actually, one of the Psalms that was recited uh, during Sukkot, as you're marching up to Jerusalem, or marching specifically up to the Temple Mount, and you're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and it's language that's used to welcome the Messiah. So Jesus is saying in Luke here, Jerusalem's going to be trampled down until a time in the future when God intervenes to act once again on behalf of Israel and the Jewish people according to his divine purpose, clearly clearly shown and prophesied in the scriptures. And then that parallel passage, you won't see me again until you, Israel, you, Jerusalem, proclaim my messiahship. In essence, there's going to be a time in history when you welcome me as the Messiah, the Messiah, son of David, that Israel's waited for. Though you don't recognize me now, you'll recognize me then. And really, Carly, we can see, I'll say miraculously, maybe you can say it's a fluke of history, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say miraculously, in what's known as the Six-Day War in 1967, 
Jerusalem at this point, right? Israel's re reunified, regathered as a nation, the UN partition vote of 1947 and the establishment of the modern state of Israel in 1948 under Ben-Gurion and the others. And Israel exists again as a state, but very quickly in the days after the establishment of the state, Jordan invades and declares war on Israel like immediately within hours. And Jerusalem is still under the control of Jordanian armies. So it's still under Arab control. And then all of a sudden in June 1967, through miraculous means, the Israeli Defense Force marches in in response to an attack and has this tremendous military victory and makes it to what's called the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and regains control of the Temple Mount. And all of a sudden, for the first time in 2000 years, Jerusalem is back in Jewish hands. So back to the passage you're quoting, Jerusalem will be trampled on it by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So I would say it's erroneous to use this passage to say, ah, see, God's rejected Israel, God's rejected Jerusalem and given Jerusalem into the, into the control of the Gentiles, the nations. True until a set time in history. And I believe that time has come when Jerusalem would be restored to Jewish hands. Why? Because of the righteousness and the faithfulness of Israel, the Jewish people? No, but because God in his divine providence and purpose said, at a certain point in the future, I'm going to focus my attention for blessing on Israel again, for their sake, in part, but really as a banner and a testimony to the nations that I'm the promise keeping God who will do all that I said I'm going to do. Yeshua saw it. He talks about it in Luke, the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled. Jesus prophesied about it in saying, I'll come back to Jerusalem when Jewish people recognize me as their Messiah and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I would say we're really somewhere in between these two passages. Jerusalem is back in Jewish hands, but there still isn't a national recognition of the Messiahship of Jesus. And that's Carly, part of what we're doing at Jewish Voice Ministries is to exist in this awkward in-between, to exist in the tension that the state of Israel is restored, that Jerusalem is back in Jewish hands, but there's still a callousness on the hearts of Jewish people. The scriptures say until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And, and just recognizing that God is a God of order, God's a God of timing, God's a God of priority, not because of partiality and favoritism, but because he's chosen a way in which he's going to work so that all men, Jew and Gentile alike, have the maximum opportunity to respond to his mercy before they have to face his judgment. So before we go on to talk about how we see replacement theology in our world today and what we can do about it as Jews and Gentiles alike, I just want to remind our audience that this podcast is supported by you, our listeners, and by donations. If you'd like to support us, you can do so at a Jew and a Gentile discuss.org. You can give one time or monthly. We also offer our Ethiopian coffee from the Lost Tribes Coffee Company right on that website. You can get it delivered to your door as often as you'd like. So if you'd like to support us, please do so. And if you stay tuned to the end of this podcast, we'll share how you can win a free bag of that coffee as well. So Ezra, you know, we've talked about what is replacement theology, some different statements that people might agree with, and then also some different scriptures that people might use as proof texts for replacement theology. But I want to know, if you look at society and our church today, how do you see replacement theology playing out? Yeah, you know, there's still, Carly, there's still threads of the idea of God has rejected Israel. And, you know, nobody, fortunately, people can kind of be passive listeners on our podcast, even though we'd love to hear from you. But without raising your hand, which we couldn't see anyway, maybe, you know, in, in a Bible study or wherever, maybe in a sermon at your church or congregation, 
the pastor or somebody from time to time kind of throws in some kind of quasi-derogatory mark, remark about the Jewish people. Or we kind of have this idea, right, that the, that the Jews, it's really the Jewish leaders Jesus is challenging and confronting, but the Jews are the great antagonists of the New Testament, and Jesus the Christian is the protagonist. Uh, we can still see that, and that that comes from replacement theology, the idea that the Jews are those who rejected Jesus and deserve the punishments and the condemnation that, that comes as a result, rather than the Jews being the people for whom Jesus came, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, um, not just to confront, but to offer an outstretched hand of mercy and redemption through his own blood. Um, so we can still see it manifesting itself that way. I think as tolerance, and you know, even as I say that word, that has positive implications and negative implications um, for me, maybe many in our audience can relate, but as tolerance kind of becomes the rule of the day, I think outright um, rejection of Jewish people in church rhetoric and church theology and church thought is either becoming less and less or at least not being talked about as much, even though unfortunately in recent years we've seen a, a multi-decade high, if you will, resurgence in anti-Semitic events uh, happening, not just in the United States, but around the world as measured by some of the kind of watchdog organizations. So even today, even in the 2020s, we see anti-Semitism unfortunately, on the rise, even as tolerance grows. But by and large, you're probably hearing less and less of God has cursed the Jewish people. Not exactly a PC thing to say that you're going to hear from the pulpit. But Carly, I think the way that we see this manifesting itself today is through the other side of, of a similar coin, or if not the same coin, and it's what we call dual covenant theology. And it's the idea that, unfortunately, the Pope affirmed in a statement he made in 2013 that God loves the Jewish people. God's not rejected the Jewish people, but they have their own path to salvation. They have their own means and ways for being right, having a right standing with God. And in a way, I'm going to make kind of a bold statement here. And before you bristle at it, just think about it. In a way, the idea that the Jews have their own path to God is saying, if you really believe what you believe as a Christian, that God has rejected the Jewish people. Why? Because if I say to you, Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, and this was actually a speech to Jewish people during, during uh, the days following Pentecost uh, in the year that Jesus died and was resurrected, it says salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And you're saying, amen. If that's true, and you believe it, and you say the Jews have their own path to God apart from Jesus, but there's no other name by which they may be saved, then how exactly is it that Jewish people are going to come into right standing with God? It just I'm, I'm letting that marinate for a minute. Dual covenant theology, while extremely politically correct, extremely diplomatic, extremely tolerant, isn't biblical. And I, I want to just challenge you at home. I challenge you to reconcile your Bible-based faith in Jesus as the way, the truth, and the light who came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel with any belief you have that somehow through theological gymnastics, the Jewish people apart from Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, the promised Savior of Israel, have a path to right standing and forgiveness with God. I don't see it in the scriptures, Old Testament or New Testament, all of sin and come short of the glory of God. 
there's no way for right standing for forgiveness for salvation apart from the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's one way for Jew and Gentile alike. So I just want to I want to challenge our audience with that. Dual covenant theology is in a way another modern PC brand of replacement theology that the Jewish people don't need and in fact shouldn't be offered Jesus that they have their own path. It's not scriptural. Uh, I challenge you, if that's what you think, read the scriptures, especially the gospel. See what God has to say to Jewish people. See what Jesus has to say to Jewish people who are trying to figure out if they can ever have right standing with him. And uh, think about that one again. To Christians that are listening now that might think, okay, maybe this is something I've heard in my church. Now what do I do? How would you encourage them, you know, as they're learning for the first time about replacement theology and perhaps where they go to worship worship each weekend believes this? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. And I think what's important to, to remember is that hopefully, at least, most of our uh, pastors and Christian leaders and small group leaders and elders and deacons and preaching pastors and whomever, right, the teachers in, in the churches and congregations we attend didn't just come out of nowhere one day and say, I'm going to start speaking. They've done study. They've probably gone to seminary. Maybe they're licensed, ordained ministers. Uh, they have some training under, the, under their belt that qualifies them to teach. And unfortunately, I'll, I'll use that, that word uh, kind of boldly, a lot of uh, American seminaries and European seminaries, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to say, even some seminaries and theological teaching entities in the land of Israel for believers actually teach replacement theology. Or at, at best, they'll quote half of the verse that says there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. And then conclude without quoting the other half that Jewish identity doesn't matter. There's no distinction. Well, the other half of the verse, if we want to talk about that, says there's no difference between male or female. Well, let me just point out that women can have kids, and that's part of their God-given ability, and men, sorry guys, can't. Or I should say, sorry ladies, depending on how you look at it. But uh, So we say, well, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. There's absolutely no difference in what they're called to do and their destiny and how God's made them. Okay, so no difference at all between men and women? Well, I didn't say that. Okay, well, it's the same verse. But unfortunately, God-fearing, Jesus-loving ministers come out of seminary with this idea either that the church is the new Israel or Jewish identity doesn't matter. That's another kind of facet of replacement theology. And so they're teaching that in the churches. And so I think we just have to understand people didn't come up with this from nowhere. There's a lot of multi-century Christian tradition and seminary teaching and theological education that teach and propagate these same beliefs. So if you are seeing it in your church and you're feeling like, man, I want to address this. Understand that your pastor didn't invent it. Nobody sat down and said, how am I going to accurse the people that God has blessed today? It's education that they've received that isn't necessarily going to be undone in a day. So I would say, Carly, for those listening who say, I feel like I need to confront this, you know, going in and saying, I want a meeting with you, pastor, assemble the elders. You are wrong. Okay. That that's, kind of the vinegar approach, not the honey approach. You may not get very far with that because you're challenging something that these, these leaders have spent years learning about. My suggestion is study the scriptures on your own. We say be a Berean, if you're familiar with that term, as a, if you come from a Christian background. Study out what Carly and I are talking about today and in the first episode in this two-part series on replacement theology. If it rings true with you, which I hope and I believe it will, as you look at the fullness of the scriptures and the context of these scriptures, and you go, you know, I feel like 
maybe my church needs to look at this again. The approach I would take, Carly, is just to go that way. Say, hey, I'm reading the scriptures, pastor. I'm reading the scriptures, elder. I'm reading the scriptures, small group uh, leader. And God's really speaking to me about his heart and his promises for Israel and the Jewish people. I wonder if as a church we've really taken any time to dive into that. Can you explain to me what we believe and why that is? And come from the perspective of desiring to learn more about why it is that your church believes, preaches, teaches what it does, rather than immediately condemning it. And uh, maybe you might learn something in the process, but the scriptures should speak for themselves. And if there's context you feel like is being ignored in the teaching in your church or congregation, I don't think it's a bad thing to point that out. Of course, with all humility, with all submission, with all diplomacy, understanding that you and I don't have a corner on the truth. There's things I need to learn about what the scriptures have to say, and I'm very willing to be proven wrong, but go in that spirit saying, let's look at the context here and what it is that God's saying about Israel and the Jewish people. I would imagine most pastors and church leaders would welcome that type of conversation a little different than probably most of their meetings that come into their office. So I would encourage you to do that. Even if it is, start with your small group leader or someone that is a friend of yours that you also know studies the scriptures. To our audience, I hope that this was a helpful episode. Again, if you if you missed the first episode, go back and listen to the first in this series on replacement theology. This is a, a heavy topic that might be new for you. So look at the scriptures Ezra and I uh, talked about. They're also in the show notes if you uh, want to look them up. If you want to hear more episodes of A Jew and a Gentile Discuss, you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love if you'd leave us a review and share this podcast with someone you know. As I mentioned earlier, we are doing a monthly coffee giveaway right now. You can enter to win a bag of our Lost Tribes coffee from Ethiopia by texting JG to 474747. You can also follow us and engage with us on social media at the handle A Jew and a Gentile Discuss, where you can submit questions, let us know anything you want to discuss. You can also do that on our website too. So thanks again for listening. Join us next week for another episode. The show is a production of Jewish Voice Ministries International.